Welcome to Faith Kit, a weekly conversation with Rev. Dr. Glenn Miles and noted guests, dialoguing their life of faith in today's culture. Let's join Dr. Miles and today's guest. Hi, this is Glenn Miles. I'm the senior minister at First Community Church in Columbus, Ohio, and this is Faith Kit. Our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Uh, Jim Keck from, uh, um, well, gosh, where the heck are you from? From Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln. <laughs> you know, we've only been friends for a long time. Uh, I was trying to think as I was working on my notes for this, how long we've known each other. 2006, maybe? Is that when we met? Yeah, maybe 2007, maybe. Somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in there, yeah. When am I going to see you next? We were together in January in Kansas City, and we were together at Camp Akita in April. When are we crossing paths? I, I you know, I don't know that we're going to see each other until next spring for our next mm. Desert Brothers uh, gathering. Um, mm. I we talked about going to see Russ down in San Antonio, San Antonio down in uh, Fort Worth. Um, yeah. Sometime this fall, maybe that can happen. But uh, yeah, it's it's been a good year, man. It has been. And thanks for letting me text you like every day, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> please, please do, because I quote you regularly in staff meeting. Here's here's some things not to do. OK, we've we've, we've gotten off way too mean here. Let's 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 go back to um, uh, glad you're here, Jim. And uh, for for sure, take a little mo- moment here to uh, tell us who you are, your background and where you're serving currently and all that sort of thing. Oh, you bet. Um, well, I was born in Des Moines, Iowa, and uh in second grade, I moved to Upper Arlington. So I imagine many of your podcast listeners. Um, I went to Greensville Elementary School, Hastings Junior High, and then Dublin High School. Grew up at First Community Church. Right. Um, have you ever heard of First Community Church? Glenn? I believe so. Yes, right here at South Campus is where I am. Yeah. In fact, uh, actually, when I think of my key memories at First Community, number one, uh, at First Community Church, I had my first kiss in eighth grade. It was in the Lincoln Road Chapel on a youth retreat. Is that still used at all? The Lincoln Road oh, yeah. Chapel. Oh yeah, very much. Yep. Um, then my next memory as I read Genesis Christmas Eve services from the pulpit at South, um, you know, the late night Christmas Eve service when I was in fourth grade, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then la- my other memory is um, when I was at First Community, my uncle was a big eight official and he came in to do a big Ohio State game to referee it. And uh, it was against Colorado, who were ranked two at that time. And he called, uh, he made a call on an offside kick by OSU that it didn't travel 10 yards, even though they recovered it and thought they could win the game. He called it off. Woody Hayes went ballistic and the entire stadium came down on him. But I remember the next day in Brownlee Hall, my uncle, uh, who had just officiated the game, visited church then uh, the next Sunday. And my dad was one of the ministers at First Community. And I'm standing there with my uncle in Brownlee Hall and about 30 of the churchmen kind of gathered around him and were just grilling him about this call he made. And I remember my uncle just standing there smiling. Then after a while, he said, and where were your seats? (laughs) Everybody was. Oh, that's a great story. Uh, I loved First Community Church growing up. Then I started at Miami of Ohio, um, but then transferred to Boulder, Colorado. Uh, because it's Boulder, uh, and finished college there. In Boulder, I I became really immersed in psychology. Uh, I was an undergrad in psychology and thought that I was going to continue in sports psychology. Hmm. Um, I was um, kind of saturated in the personality theories of Carl Jung and Freud and Adler and the like, and I I thought that was going to be my direction. I wanted to help athletes peak perform 
and use psychology. So I thought I was going to simply stay in for a doctoral degree, but it was in Boulder um, that academic psychology began to feel so arid to me. And I started to have some spiritual experiences as well. Um, and, and realized as I was graduating that I didn't want to be in psychology. Um, but, but instead of helping people peak perform in athletics, I wanted to try to work on spiritual matters and help people peak perform as it were in that. So I decided to go to seminary that, that then took me to Berkeley. Um, wait, you're a Cal dude, aren't you? Go bears. Oh man. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so I was in Berkeley for three years for seminary. Um, I was a minister in training at the first congregational church, Berkeley. I know it well. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. Loved it there in Berkeley. Great. Um, and um, it was in that internship that I fell in love with church stuff. I went to seminary um, more to temporize. I didn't know what I wanted to do career-wise. I mean, it was that existential panic, you know? Uh, did you know, when did you know you wanted to be a minister? You know, kind of, I'm a preacher's kid. So I always kind of loved, I mean, I loved church. I was the oldest of four kids. I loved church. I loved going to church. I, I was, I, I taught the junior high Sunday school class when I was in high school, you know, um, I went to a little <laughs> oh, you're Bible. A church geek. You're I'm a, a church, church geek. geek. I went to a little Bible college to ex- extend my extraordinarily mediocre basketball career, which lasted <laughs> one year. I, you, if you sit the bench in Bible college, it's a sign you should quit. Um, <laughs> And then I thought I was going to teach and coach, and I got hired at a little disciples church in Northern California. And a year later, they said, we want you to stay, but we think you have a call for ministry. Here's some money. Why don't you go to school? So, you know, looking back, there were a ton of signs that ministry was was where I was headed. I just wasn't really paying attention. But we're a little similar. It was its actual church experience that excited us, though. I Mm Because for me, I was just going to grad school because I didn't know what else to do. I loved spiritual things. Right. But it was then when I was working at that church in Berkeley, I just fell in love with what church is about. You know, if, if, for me, if I had to design like the kind of place I'd want to hang out at, you know, church has people working for social justice and really civically engaged. It's got classes and the life of the mind and intellection. It's got um, live music all week long, being around beautiful music. It's got, you know, that sociability and friendships and interaction. It's got you know, the worship life, I love the mystery and the ritual and the spirit of that. Um, if you just sort of added up everything that happens at church, I just started to really groove on it. Um, so decided to get ordained and become a local minister. I took my first church in uh, Newport Beach, California, um, a, a difficult ghetto ministry, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's a it's, tough place to be, boy. Um, tough and, place. and you got out alive. That's, that's a miracle. <laughs> Yeah, You know, and, and all joking aside, of course, so even high net worth people can have misery in their lives and, and need sure. spiritual, uh, um, support. So, sure. uh, but I, I loved, loved my time in Newport. And then, um, then I took my uh, first senior position in Concord, Massachusetts, um, and uh, just had a huge kick, you know, Concord, the home of the transcendentalists, like um, Henry David Thoreau. Oh, by the way, it's not Thoreau. Everyone else around the country says Thoreau. If you live in Concord, the, na- the way the family name is pronounced is Thoreau. Um, Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Alcott. And um, it was such a literary town. And uh, oh, I just I just loved it. When I was in Concord, I began my doctoral work in Boston on uh, historical Jesus reconstructions. Hmm. Uh, it just got um, just so immersed in that. It was a, 
Um, I was looking at early post-Enlightenment reconstructions of Jesus. What can we know about Jesus historically? Sure, and some right. of those first portraits that emerged right after the scientific revolution in the early 1700s and late 1600s. Um, and, and, and I got really fired up about in what ways can Christians use actual historical information about Jesus of Nazareth to sort of animate and um, inform their faith image of Jesus. And mm -hmm. um, so in those years, I was um, uh, just very activated theologically. And then, and then I took a senior position in San Mateo, California, uh, back out to the San Francisco Peninsula. And uh, got very involved in faith-based community organizing and adjunct faculty at the seminary I went to in Berkeley. Um, just had a wonderful time. Uh, I began to have a desire, though, for more public theology in the sense of wanting to take a larger church that was more involved in kind of an open public conversation. Um, and uh, First Plymouth Church in Lincoln began to recruit me. And, it, and I've been here now 17 years. It's just been a joy. I was trying to think how 17 years and yeah. your, predecessor, your predecessor was there like 34, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Good memory. 34 years. And then, uh, so we've had only two pastors for about 52 years now, actually. Yeah, that's, that's really amazing. Uh, given the context and churches normally work within. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. Are you going to make me cry during this interview? I, I am, yes. Um, what what Jim is referring to is a, a retreat he and I were on, and we got into a very personal conversation. Seriously, we did get into a personal conversation, and all I did was ask a simple question, and the next thing you know, there were tears. Well, yeah, you're telling that in a political way. Actually, there's about five ministers. We're in a bar, and we're having a cocktail, <laughs> and, uh, and I was just talking about my divorce I was going through and kind right. of a you know, the was sardonic kind of way with a group of, of, of guy friends. But then all of a sudden, Glenn put on his great pastoral voice and his caring heart. And he looked at me and goes, Jim, but how are you doing? And I, I started weeping right away. <laughs> I think you ended up buying everybody's drinks and food. So it worked out well. <laughs> well, you know, that's a good, that's a good point to kind of transition a little bit. Um, say something about your current role and and in, in the current position that you've been in for 17 years now, um, uh, what, what, uh, what's your least favorite thing to do? What's your most favorite thing to do? And, and then a third part of that, too, at some point, talk about a myth of ministry that you'd love to debunk. Oh, okay. okay. Keep, make sure you remember those questions. I got them. I, I, I got them. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, as, as far as this church, um, it's, it was the first church in Lincoln, Nebraska. You know, Nebraska is not that old, right? So it's 1866. Um, and it wasn't even called Lincoln, Nebraska. It was called Lancaster. So this was the first church in Lancaster, Nebraska, and then it later became the state capital and was named Lincoln. Um, but to, to be part of a church that kind of grew up with the community um, and also a church that um, is this wonderful mixture of progressive and sensibility, but, but very historic and, and uh, lovers of tradition in terms mm -hmm. of its uh, style. Um, so it's sort of that high magisterium of Protestant worship and sanction. We have a lot of contemporary services now too, but, but I mean, it's main vibe. Um, while also um, being a place like in Lincoln, Nebraska, we were performing same sex marriages at first Plymouth in the mid 1980s. I, I mean, think, that. Yeah. I mean, that's like 20 years before the Supreme court got there. Right. Um, and, uh, and we were known nationally for, uh, for that. And, it's a great story that that Otis Young, who was pastor for 35 years here, um, 
when he was performing same-sex marriages in the 1980s, he had members come up to him and said, hey, we're a congregational church. Don't we get to vote um, whether you perform same-sex marriages here? And he said, oh, no, you don't understand. Uh, you don't get to vote on who we minister to. You get to vote whether to fire me or not. <laughs> that is a great story. Uh, that really is a great story. So, yeah, you got, we think of ourselves at First Community here as being way ahead of the curve. We started doing them in the year 2000. So we, we were 15 years ahead of the nation, but 20 years behind you guys. Yeah. Do you know, do you know um, Sex in the City, uh, the TV show, yeah. was based on Tales, I think it's called Tales of the City, by, um, which were a series of novels that came out of San Francisco. Oh, I know. It. Yes, yes. And actually, First Plymouth is mentioned in one of those novels. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because even people in San Francisco, because we also brought in the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus in like 1990. And again, back in 1990, that was a dramatic thing in Lincoln, Nebraska. Was that Armistead Mopin? Is that the author? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That they used to run excerpts in the San Francisco Chronicle every Sunday from from his, his from those novels. It's just yeah, good stuff. Really good. That's stuff. it. Good memory. Yeah. Good memory. Yeah. yeah. So um, you've got a great church, awesome ministries. I know your your congregation well. You guys have been ahead of the curve. Um, what's one of your least favorite things about being a pastor? Not necessarily at First Plymouth, but just in general. Well, you know, just in a really general way, if I think about the arc of my own narrative. Um, you know, what really brought me into ministry um, was mystical experiences. I, you know, I had a personal experience of Jesus Christ uh, when I was in college. Um, and really, that was the, the core impulse that, that began this. And it's just interesting in life if, you know, you go into ministry with a mystical impulse, but you, 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 you pretty much become a manager like it, instead of a mystic you become a manager i mean you you know every church is like its own enterprise and you're you're basically manager of a local retail shop as it were i mean um, uh, yeah, you're right yeah and 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 i don't it's not that i dislike it it's just interesting to think that um there is an element of ministry that has moved me away from what was um you know, I just was so into the deep kind of subjective, introspective, mystical uh, experiences. Um, but now, of course, ministry is very, very um, external and, and managerial and public. Um, I, I, I've learned to really enjoy that stuff. I'm just noting that uh, it's different than what first led me into it. You know, one of, one of my guests coming up is Adam Hamilton, and, and he you know, he's got that big giant church with 30,000 members or whatever it is. And he, he will, he, hopefully he'll say something like this on, on my visit with him. He talks about how much he misses those days when he was a pastor of a 300 member church, the first couple of years and knew people at a deep level and, and had a lot of those sort of mystical experiences you're talking about. And, 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 um, that doesn't mean what he's doing now isn't, isn't worthwhile and isn't amazing, but, um, there's certainly some sadness around losing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, when you pastor larger churches like we do, um, there are some unique set of challenges that come along with that. One I, that I feel all the time is, um, you know, as senior minister, I am both the main content producer here, but I'm also having to, like I say, manage uh, the place and administrate, administrate the place. Um, well, usually the content producers, that's kind of a back office job and you get a lot of quiet time. Um, but I'm having to, um, you know, help shape the, the overall life of the church as well. So sometimes I feel a tension. Where am I really getting the time to reflect and develop um, new and, and meaningful content? Um, 
because because take for example you know at first plymouth um i preach four or five services a weekend um so it's at least 200 times i preach a year and then with baptisms funerals and weddings we also do private baptismal services i do about 300 worship services a year so if i'm doing 300 services um, and then as well as teaching classes. And a lot of times you, uh, it can feel like I'm on the move a lot, but when am I actually deeply trying to ground myself in, in developing content? That's hard. Yeah, I, I totally agree. No matter how much education we've got, there's always something we don't know. So, so you kind of, you kind of lean that way. Um, debunk a myth uh, of no. ministry that you, that you would like our listeners to know, know about. Well, this, this might seem a little, of an arcane example, but um, I think sometimes people assume that funerals are a really depressing thing for a minister mm. to do, mm. or that that would be the sad part of the job. I've got to tell you, actually, funerals are the most deeply sustaining and spiritually centering part of my job, because because the vast majority of funerals are older folks that have lived a, a good life. Now, right. now, there are the tragic ones when a young, when a child has died or, and yes, those are, those are emotionally draining, maybe almost beyond belief, but the majority of funerals are actually a, a deep, celebrative, joyful, um, I, to get to really lift up a person's life, to be with their family. When I'm doing a funeral um, any given week, um, it feels like it's carrying me through the week. Oh, um, I totally agree. Totally. Do you agree? agree? Oh, I agree. I, you know, I, I often say, especially in the, in the, in the life of somebody, some, someone who's lived 90 years, has been an amazing servant, has loved the church, has loved God, has loved people. You get to exegete that life and, and you, know, you get, and then you get to celebrate it and share it. And it's, I've said this before to, in my mind, that sort of a service is the purest presentation of the gospel there is. Uh, and and even even with a one like that, it's not as sad or as tragic as as you know as you mentioned with a child or a young adult. Um, people are still leaning in, and they still want to hear a word. And I, it's it is far and away the the best thing I do. I can say that for sure. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. That's I like the way you put that. It, it does really go also right to the mythic heart of what is our pastoral role, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so it, it makes me remember who I am. Uh, uh, you know, I worry about there are some ministers and also particularly larger churches that kind of farm out the funerals to some other staff person. And I and I get that in terms of just what's practical. But boy, if you divorce yourself from that basic heartbeat of what ministry is about, I worry about whether they're not being sustained for, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. I really do. Um, one of the things I love about you, you, you know, Jim Long, our, our minister of uh, pastoral yeah. care emeritus, uh, his family goes back to the 1920s in this church. So he's He's pretty much a, a, a pillar, a monument among us. Um, but Jim's done a really sweet thing lately. He's invited me to be in the service to do a, an opening and a greeting and maybe the pastoral prayer or whatever it might be. And, and I, I've been really grateful to Jim for those opportunities because, like you say, I can get super busy and not. And then I'm there and I think, yeah, this is this is why I'm ordained. This is what we do. Really, this is yeah. This is why I'm ordained. That's oh, nice. That's and I. The other thing that occurred to me when you asked about myths, and this one is maybe oddball, but, um, you know, when you pastor a large church, uh, we have to help resource and fund the organization in terms of, uh, you know, creating relationships with donors and and, uh, such. Um, And that's true. But I think sometimes a myth develops that 
that that I spend most of my time with high net worth individuals. Hmm. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. If hmm. you that really where a minister spends most of their time with is people that are struggling, don't have jobs, don't have an, you know, right. um, by far I'm spending the, the, the high net worth people actually, they like to connect once a year with me, maybe, you know, um, but it's the people the day to day. And I think some people imagine in these large churches, the senior ministers just kind of, uh, you know, hanging out with the people, the major donors. That's just not the case. You know, when I went to, oh yeah, for total. When I when I went to Country Club Christian, um, you know, I was forty four, uh, youngest senior minister in the history of that church. I was, uh, I can say this now. I was scared to death, and and I called up Fred Craddock, who I knew pretty well. Uh, yeah, you know, the great old preacher who lived in Georgia, not too far from us. And and he knew the church great because Lawrence Bash, who was there in the sixties, was a deep friend of his. And he said that the the impression that people will have of you is that the senior pastor sits in a velvet lined chair and <laughs> is served lunch every day by a caring staff. And, you know, it's and you just just get used to that now. And you're not going to be able to debunk that myth. But just know that's the perception that's out there. And I think that's kind of similar to what you're saying. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that is. And I, and, you know, there's also. Um, in terms of kind of the mythic role of ministry, sometimes we just call ourselves preachers and everyone really focuses on the preaching. Um, I, I guess I have to say I'm a little idiosyncratic in that in terms of the preaching task, I mostly am just not trying not get in the way of the spirit. I, I don't feel like, um, I don't know quite how to articulate this, Glenn. I, hmm. When I'm preaching, I don't really feel like I'm doing a terribly important thing other than helping set, set the stage for the collective effervescence that might happen um, in worship together. Um, and I don't know why I have such a low kind of uh, theology of preaching, but somewhere along the line, I enjoy it. I have moments of joy trying to communicate something. Um, but I actually, I, I remember when I first... Uh, when I took my first church in Concord, um, it kind of dawned on me all of a sudden I'd have to preach every week. I hadn't thought that through. It hadn't even occurred to me. And then when I came to First Plymouth, um, I completely forgot that they were on um, television. Uh, uh, you know, that we were on network affiliates all through the state of Nebraska, still are. Um, but I remember the first week when they came in and said, you have to film the TV commercial. I had forgotten that we were even on television. Um, there's something about preaching, and, and again, you should challenge me on this, but there's something about it where all I feel like is I just have to not suck. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, that's my sermon title this Sunday. I'm trying not to suck. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's some of that. Um, you, you might be lowballing a little bit because one, you're you're a good preacher, and and you got seriously uh, you got serious skills and talent. So there's there's that. Um, uh, and I, and I really do think. You know, I said this once on one of our retreats together that, you know, preaching is the power is, let me see if I can get it right. Preaching is the power of persuasion through personality. Um, and it's kind of a literal little thing there, but, but I really think that's what it is. And so we want to bring our full selves to that moment, not make it about us, not make it about our, our, um, uh, weak need somehow for uh, therapy or, or whatever, but to really allow ourselves to be there in that moment and then, then let the spirit take whatever there is. That, that'd be my mild pushback. 
Yeah, no, and, and again, I, I should be challenged on it. I probably should have a higher notion of preaching. I, I think it comes also, I'm just not a good listener to sermons. Um, I'm a reader. Yeah, me too. Uh, and I, I and I so I'd, I'd much rather read the sermon as an article than than listen to a, a, an oral presentation. Um, can you think so, of a time? Can you think of a time though when you? I, I mean, I, I can think of several, especially from my high school days. My dad was running around with a lot of the Wittenberg Door guys. If you remember the Wittenberg Door, you know Mike Yacanelli and all, all those dudes, and and got to know some of them pretty well. And then I became good buddies with Mike Yacanelli. Um, I just remember hearing it like at a youth specialist convention. And, and feeling like Yacanelli was preaching to me and, you know, that sort of thing. So, I mean, I, I've had a couple of those experiences, but it's to your point, it's in the room. I can't, yeah, I can I, hardly watch online. I think, you know, this is wrapped up in our biographies. The, the reality is you come from a tradition, I think, that really values the charismatic moment of preaching. That's true. Um, yeah, more so true. than, you know, I grew up an Iowa Methodist where it was, it, it felt much more kind of communitarian. Mm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, but you, 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 you know, you, uh, the, the DOC does have this sense of the, you know, the word of God is being offered and that's an awesome responsibility. And, I, and I'm not trying to shirk that responsibility. I'm just being honest about internally, um, you know, just internally, I'm trying to just not look like an ass. You know? <laughs> I, but, well, so far you're doing okay. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think you're right on that in, in a way, the old disciple churches built in the 1800s, early 1900s, where was the pulpit? Oh, was it in the center? It's in the center. Yeah, you can still find a lot of those buildings around today that are that are st- still functioning, still uh, regular churches, and it's in the center, much like the uh, in the Baptist tradition and and others where the word is central. In fact, it used to be, you know, that the the baptistry would either be right in front or the baptistry would be right behind the pulpit, and then right in front of the pulpit was the Lord's table. So you had all the sacraments: the sacrament of the of water, the sacrament of of wine, and the sacrament of the word. Um, all there centrally located. Um, so that is, a, I guess it is a part of who we are. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing I do cherish is, you know, since I'm so long in the tooth here, I've been preaching for 35 years now, um, just by reps alone. I'm no longer, um, I'm a little liberated in the sense that if I don't feel like I have anything important to say, I don't overwork it. Like I'll be, I don't use notes and I'll be talking. If I realize, you know what? There's nothing that important going on here. I can just wrap it up. Like I vary. I don't know about you, but I'll vary. Sometimes I'll only preach 12 minutes if it's just sucking wow. for air. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, know, I, and I, I'll go 20, 25 if I feel like I'm onto something. I've kind of been in a 15 minute to 22 minute. That's, that's kind of the same thing. If I, if and there's, there's times and I've, and I've gone to no notes as well. And there's times when I'm head, in my head where I'm going, boy, that next story I wanted to tell here is stupid. I'm just going to skip over it. Whatever, whatever. But it also, it also depends on the room. I might use that story at the next service, if it, if it seems to flow with that room. Hey, well, I want to get a- That's the other benefit we have is, you know, both of us preach on a Sunday multiple times and right. you got a passes at it, right? You get, you get a few passes at it. Although uh, my, the feedback I get is the first sermon out is the best. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something about the freshness of it. And I, I would be hard pressed to to disagree with that. So it, the, one of the things we're doing this faith kit is talking about faith and and uh, this sermon series is called Faith Kit. It's based on um, the NPR series uh, Life Kit, you know, uh, creating life hacks to help your life. So we created a little phrase here, faith hacks. Uh, what, what faith hacks do you have in your life that help you deal with uh, moments when you're maybe overcome by doubt or worry or your faith feels like it's faded away and it's gone? Um, 
be as open as you want and and but also respect that you may not want to go there too far well i'll be i'll be open in the sense that i get confused about the word faith at times what exactly we're referring to if by faith one is referring to you know do i believe in the reality of god at any given moment actually for me um I don't experience doubt or lack in a sense of the reality of God. For me, um, I think, again, from, the, from my mystical experiences, uh, both the fact that uh, love is so vivid and nature is so beautiful and reason seems to order the universe. I, it, God, God, to me, as, as something just do I believe in the reality of God, I, I, don't, I don't struggle with that really ever. But if, but if by faith you mean something more existential like a trust or or do uh um i mean there's certainly many many times in my life i become anxious or fearful so if by faith you mean not being as fearful and being more trusting (laughs) um uh i certainly face that that is an ongoing hardship but for me um then the hacks, as it were, meditation has played a major role in my life. And mm. even as I'm saying that, I realize I've let that discipline um, slide. Um, but it, at various times in my life, meditation has brought me back to a level of, of uh, calm centeredness that, that, that I needed. Um, I also, when you say faith, I didn't grow up in a tradition. So for example, it's not a provocative or challenging thing for me to disbelieve in any given doctrine or theological statement. I, I just, I simply grew up in such a liberalized Christian environment. Um, I never experienced like, well, like whatever, um, uh, there was never some, uh, gosh, like, well, take the divinity of Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that was never a make or break issue, whether I, whether I thought Jesus was God or, or how I understood the divinity of Jesus Christ. Um, and so, you know, on any kind of major theological um, uh, statement, I grew up in a tradition that, that expected you to challenge it, to explore it. So I, that, that's never felt like a faith crisis or, or the authority of scripture, for example. I've never right. been tortured about what, what, how high do I place the authority of scripture or not. And that, it never feels to me like a major uh, a f- loss of faith or a... Um, does that make sense? Oh, it does totally. And that—I mean—that was a big deal. What you've described is a big deal for me. Moving from uh, all of this is absolutely true, and you really—and not only that, but you have to believe it and accept it that way—to uh, wide open questions and wonderings and 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 so forth for sure. And I, uh, my definition of faith—and I don't want—I didn't want to try to to, to gear this too much, um, just to let you you talk. But my definition of faith is ultimately based on trust. You know, do you do you trust that that love is there? Do you trust that that um, I, I liked how you said it that reason uh, or orders the universe? You know, I, that's my sense ultimately. And when I find myself falling apart, it's when I've lost that trust. Um, yeah. That that just doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. So when I so when you say faith hacks, I'm really thinking of just in what ways sustain me with a sense of positivity and calm and centeredness, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. meditation, and that's working out and that's, uh, trying to, uh, uh, you know, eat well. I mean, it's a lot of just kind of very basic things. Um, and I don't, uh, I guess it'd be, it'd be interesting to, to ask myself rather than when my faith is imperiled that there, where is my faith challenged? Mm. Um, like right now I will say 
um, I have less faith in myself as a minister than I ever have. Um, mm. with, uh, becoming an old white man um, makes me feel like, uh, am I just now so burrowed into a perspective of a you know, middle-class Anglo, older male, um, because this world, this world is complex and things have changed a lot, Glenn, right. In terms of church and ministry. Um, when I was a 40 year old minister, I, I had complete faith in my intuition of how I thought, uh, what direction I should take the church or, and, uh, now, um, I would say my loss of faith more has to do with, um, do I believe my perspective even matters? Yeah. No, I, I'm in the same boat with you. I, I'm at least, what, five years older than you? So, uh, uh, I mean, I look younger, but other than that. Uh, <laughs> you look fabulous. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. I, hopefully my wife will listen to this far in the, in the podcast. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's jump into the, to the text that uh, I'm preaching on Sunday after this uh, podcast comes out. I, I like to do a cold reading of the text on, on Monday. Don't look at Fred Craddock or Amy Jill Levine or any of the scholars that are out there on on whatever uh, they have to say, just read it and and make some notes. So this week's was a, it's kind of a weird one, Luke 10, one through 11 and 16 to 20. And um, it's that story of, of Jesus sending his disciples out. And if you're not well received, shake the dust off your sand, uh, shake the dust off your sandals and just move on. Um, it, it's a cool text, I think, but in a, in a cold reading, in a cold thinking about it, what comes to mind? Is that the passage when it's the 72? Yes. Yep. We're in Luke? Luke, yep, Luke 10. Um, well, uh, I mean, just my initial reaction, uh, is first of all, you know, we tend to focus on there only being 12 disciples, or at least we lionize this golden circle of 12. Um, you know, then when that passage comes around, you, you get a little inkling. There were some, there was a much larger number of deeply invested people in that early Jesus movement, right. um, whatever, you know, whatever that exactly was. Um, and so, um, and to, to remember that that included apparently a lot of women as well. Yep. Um, so I think anytime, you know, I'm saddened anytime those 12 male disciples in our imagination are seen as somehow the, that apostolic pure circle. That means that then meaning that women can't be priests in the Catholic church and things like right. that. Right. Um, I, I would hope that uh, this would give us a wider sense of, of what being a follower of Jesus was then, but also, um, that seems to me highly organized. Um, uh, so, so it looks to me like this shows an intentionality around being a spiritual movement. Um, by the way, I wish we still had that. I think every church has to think of itself as a spiritual movement. You've got to get organized and you got to go out in faith-based organizing. We call this one-on-ones. You've got to get out and create relationships. You've got to meet with people, sit down with them. This thing, you know, that's sending 72 people out to villages uh, looks like a faith-based community organizing move that I love. Um, and, and Christianity is a religious movement, not a religious standstill. So this thing is, this thing is activated. It, this, this chapter seems activated to me. And Hey, Jim, hang on. Hang on a second. Say that again. Christianity is what is, is a, a, a religious movement, not a, say that again. Yeah. Christianity has to think of itself as a religious movement, not a religious standstill. I love that. I mean, we, we, and so this thing's got movement for me and intensity. The Gospel of Mark has a lot of movement and intensity, but here in sure. Luke, it, it ramps up. Um, it, so, oh gosh, I don't know. Is that? Oh, that's great. Yeah, just, 
Uh, well, that's I, I haven't think about it much at all because we're actually recording this a couple of weeks before I preach that sermon. Um, and but what what has happened in every one of these podcasts so far is I've gotten great ideas from the sermon for the sermon. So uh, thank you much. Russ Peterman said last week he's like, so let me get this clear. We're doing the the early work for your your preaching. I said absolutely. Thank you very much. Oh, absolutely. Wait, I remember something else about that passage. Go. Is that when when those seventy two that go out? Um, isn't it the case that they perform miracles too? Yeah, cast think, out demons, heal people, all of it, yeah. Okay, so to, to remember that what makes Jesus unique in our Gospels is not his miracle working. Um, in fact, in fact, being able to perform miracles is kind of a banal reality in Scripture. I mean, right. all through Scripture, you know, what, you know, if we think he's the Christ because he can perform miracles, well, then we should bow down and worship Elijah and Elisha. And Absolutely, and right, right. It's just That's endless. And, and Peter went on to raise people from the dead. And um, and so here you got these 72 people, which by the way, uh, for a mainline Protestant Christian, this is some pretty charismatic shit. I mean, you got people who can go do miracles. I mean, you, could, you can, you know, these are 72 people that are empowered in the spirit to yeah. do miracles. And I think, I think we have a radically too low estimation of our abilities. Mm. I mm. wish the mainline church had a little more of that, that kind of Christian, well, it's called Christian perfectionism, that you could be perfected in love and power right now and, and that you could uh, display that. Um, I think we're, I think there's a tyranny of low expectations in mainline Protestant <laughs> religion. You know, I, I seem to recall uh, a long conversation in the desert on one of our retreats about this very concern. Uh, I won't, we won't go down that, that rabbit trail right now, but uh, yeah, but I, I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, I've, I, I've talked about, um, uh, and I get some pushback on this from church folks. I've talked about, you know, how, how can we have a progressive theology married to a, an evangelical fervor? You know, that, that same kind of desire of, of uh, you know, uh, God's love is so real. That's why we're marching in the pride parade. God's love is so real. That's why we're working to to end gun violence. God's love is so real. That's why we want to strengthen marriages and families. And, you know, the, the, amen. List, the list is endless. No, uh, amen. Again, to be a religious movement, you have to have some urgency and some intensity. Yeah, and yeah. We don't seem urgent enough. I, boy, I would agree with you on that, too, as well. All right, let's let's uh, let's 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 work towards the end here a little bit. A couple of lighthearted, e- easier, easier, maybe easier questions for you. Um, what's three books uh, you've read recently that you'd love to recommend to our our listeners? Oh, can I switch the question? Sure. How about three books that mattered to me in my life? Would that be that, okay? That's fine. You bet. Do it. Um. Uh, so when you were asking me about my biography early on, one thing that popped in my head was, um, when I was in my teenage years, I, I did begin to become spiritually inquisitive. And do you remember the book Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse? I do not. So Siddhartha, it's a little book and it's, um, it's a not, it's a little novel or short story about a Buddha like figure. He doesn't actually follow Buddha. His name's Siddhartha, which was one of Buddhist names, but um, this isn't actually Buddha, although Buddha makes a, an appearance in this book, but it's a little novelistic story of, of a Buddha like figure. And it just awakened my, uh, uh, my search for the meaning of life, you know, like mm-hmm. to read that as like a 17 year old, so Siddhartha, it's an easy read. I recommend it to anyone. In fact, I often do recommend it to people. It's probably 170 pages. Cool. Um, um, and it's a it's a novelistic portrayal of 
of trying to seek meaning in life and and um and then uh and then when i told you i moved to concord um i used to drive by ralph waldo emerson's home every day uh and i would i would the collected essays of ralph waldo emerson are just um played a profound role in my life i actually read one of those essays called self-reliance and i kind of make a habit of reading it at least once a year um because it seems to me ralph waldo can be lampooned very easily his language is overblown he he's kind of an exaggerated personality but it was those transcendentalists in concord that that found a way to both um see the divine within within each person um but then also as romantics to celebrate the divine they see in creation and nature and that that stuff really vibrates with me and um and self-reliance by ralph waldo is um it's a it's a it's like a poetic celebration of how every human being is unique and you you need to trust your eccentricity and not not um fall into um, uh, conformity and and or type like a fearful type of life of, that your opinions don't match up with others. Mm, it's a, yeah. it's powerful. Um, but then, but then by far the the other most impactful book for me um, was by Edgar Sheffield Brightman. It's called Nature and Values. Um, he was a liberal uh, uh, Methodist who became a a storied professor at Boston University. Martin Luther King went to Boston University to study with Edgar Sheffield Bright. Oh, really? Wow. Um, and it's and and Nature and Values is a beautiful portrayal of of what of my theological school. It's called Boston Personalism, the school of thought. Um, and the last famous personalist was Martin Luther King, and then Pope John Paul was a personalist as mm. well. Um, and it's kind of faded from the scene, but but Nature and Values. Um, you know, believes that personality is the key to the universe, that it's the most central miracle of God's universe, persons or souls, or that basically reality is consciousness is its basic. Um, but, but it's a beautiful set of ethics, too, that um, personalists will resist depersonalization in every form. So if you turn people into objects rather than subjects, mm-hmm. if you deal with human beings as things um, rather than this infinity, this consciousness, um, so it's full, you know, um, if you read Martin Luther King's speeches now, he uses the word personality all the time. Hmm. That'll be fun to go back and look and see for sure. All right. What about three movies? Either big, important oh, movies to you or recent movies? Well, did you see Hustle? I, I've watched the first 10 minutes two nights ago and I fell asleep. I'm sorry. I know. What? I, and somebody at church, I mean, somebody at the North Campus today in one of our meetings said, Glenn, tell me you've seen Hustle. I haven't seen it yet. What? So it's it's on my list. It's on my list. Oh, I just, it's number one on Netflix right now. And I tell you, my soul needed a good old time sports movie. Yeah. And, and Adam Sandler made, and I mean a classic good old sports, like those have a formula. There's got to be some young phenom that might not manifest his talent. There's got to be some crabby old coach and that somehow takes him under his wing. And then they're both redeemed when this guy can make it. And, and, you know, a good old time sports movie, um, the, the sports action has to be plausible. Right. Um, like, like Bull Durham, Kevin Costner was a high school baseball star. So that's stuff. Yeah. He, he can, can play. play. Well, or, like Hoosiers. Or, Hoosiers the same way. Hoosiers was the same way. Um, uh, well, like the longest yard with Burt Reynolds, he was yep. a college football player. Florida um, state, Florida state. Oh, like versus God, I don't even remember the name of the movie, but Tom Cruise is a pool shark. He looked lame, man. He did not have the, the, the pool form. What was that movie? Was it, wasn't it called the hustler as well? 
I don't know what it was called. Yeah, um, but so. I just remember thinking, I think like I could take him in pool. I mean, it just didn't. <laughs> um, or actually, like Gary Cooper and Lou Gehrig. You know, he looked. He did not look like a baseball. player. He could not be a baseball player. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but in this, but in hustle, uh, it's all NBA stars, and in fact, the the lead actors, as it were, in this actually plays for the Utah Jazz. Hmm. So the so the the games in the street and then the games in the gym are just filled with beautiful sports action. Um, yeah. So hustle. It's on my list. It's on my list. Good hustle. And then if I think of like all timers, uh, Avatar. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. I just I don't know. It's just it's just so spiritual. Um, and then uh, I don't know. My third. I'm. I hate to say this. I like action movies. You know, and it, this gets even more pathetic. I like Liam Neeson, old Liam Neeson action movie. Um, so like maybe like Taken or Unknown. I mean, I just right. like, I don't know what it is about that dude. But and this is like Liam Neeson, nineteen ninety eight or two thousand three. Right. right. So you you've seen. Speaking of then, you've seen Top Gun Maverick. I assume. I've seen it, and I got to tell you, I saw it. So this was a, a total blast. I got to see it in a drive-in. Oh wow. I was up in the uh, peninsula up in Wisconsin. It's called Door County. Door County they had this yeah. old fashioned drive in. And, uh, and uh, we, so we saw it in a drive in, which it's a perfect drive in movie. I got to tell you, I didn't think its character development was, ex- was, was exactly stellar, um, but it's the perfect popcorn drive in movie. I mean, those jets, baby. Oh, those oh jets. man. Oh, we, Julie and I saw it in an IMAX theater and I was, it was like, it was like being on the, in the plane with them. My hands were sweating. Julie was squeezing my arm. It was awesome. We had a huge bag of popcorn. Yeah, man. No, I, I, and I got to tell you, I mean, I struggle with as a local minister, what exactly form of patriotism uh, mm-hmm. I should take as a public theologian. Sure. Um, because, because I have a great impulse of joy and love of America and the patriotism and, um, and, you know, this movie is kind of an old style form of patriotism. I, 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 I would have to question some of its version of America in this movie, I suppose. But I, but I tell you, once you start hitting those beats for me, I think we have to find a way to be proud again of our country. I don't know the way to get there, but I, but I, I worry that young children aren't being taught to be, I, again, there's gotta be a right way to be proud of our country. Right. Right. Um, it's not about erasing the past. It's not about forgetting the all the, the racism and the slavery, all the rest. But how do we move forward in a way that's prideful? Yeah, isn't that a complex? And again, and I and I'm, I'm well aware that an old white man shouldn't be the one that leads that conversation. But but I really do want our young children to be to be deeply proud of this country. But we they're only I feel like they're only mostly hearing narratives of deconstruction, uh, which again. I'm not the one that should make this claim. And- that matters. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're at the end. Um, I've given all of my guests the last word, anything you want to say last word to uh, uh, my audience. I'd let, it's yours. Well, I, you know, so first community I've used their beloved phrase, uh, church of the infinite quest. I've used that a lot in my life. Cause I imagine every church I'm at is the church of the infinite quest. Uh, but first Plymouth has a line that sounds really trivial, but it's become important to us. It's a simple line uh, that uh, is life is good. Let it go. Be happy now. And I know that sounds trivial, but the life is good comes from Genesis where God is creating the plants and the animals and saw it was good. God created human beings and saw it was good. Um, And human beings think life has to be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. Life is good to accept that and to let it go. The way we hold on to our anger and resentments and woulda, coulda, shouldas. 
and we, we have a death grip on life itself. So at First Plymouth, we're constantly repairing. So life is good. Loosen your grip. Let it go. Don't, don't hold on to the past or resentments. And then Jesus had lots of things about, you know, leave the dead to bury the dead and, and yeah. such. Um, yeah. And then um, be happy now is, you know, human beings always imagine they'll be happy in the future. Um, uh, and that, that if they get the right relationships or enough money or uh, finally they'll be happy. But Jesus said he came that we might have joy. And, and so that when we say be happy now, uh, meaning that to realize don't wait for your happiness. You have to claim it. You have to claim it now. So at First Plymouth, that life is good. Let it go. Be happy now. That'll be my last word for you. That's a beautiful one. Amen to that. Thank you, Jim, for being on the show. Uh, it has been great, great to see you, great to hear you. And uh, let's get together soon, man. Okay? Let's do it. Good let's to have it. you as a friend, Glenn. Thanks, Jim. We'll see you around. Be well. Bye. Thank you for being with us in this episode of Faith Kit. Join us next week for another enlightening conversation.